Well, I'm Fabian, and this is part of my story. So it's Fabian. Fabian, yeah. It's, some people say Fabian, or some people think it's Fabio, but it's actually Fabian. It's very German, I guess. So, so yeah. I mean, I grew up in Berlin. I spent pretty much all of my life in Berlin. Most of my family, looking back, like my grandparents, uh, are, are were members of a church. They really appreciated all the traditions that were there, and you know, Christmas, Easter, all the feasts, um, all the celebrations. Uh, and I think that's what my environment is mostly about, is that people are really rooted in their traditions. Um, but then when you really try to dig a little deeper, as in, well, do you believe in what's behind the tradition? Do you believe in, do you believe that Jesus Christ is your savior? Or do you believe that God exists, that God has a plan for you? I think people get really uncomfortable. Um, in my experience, most of the people that I know in my family and in my environment, they just, um, it's something that's too, um, it's too emotional, it's too revealing, and so a lot of people will brush it off. I was, I guess what you call a militant atheist, this kind of person that thinks, you know, I'm, I'm smart and I, I can understand the world and I don't need this, this construct uh, to make me feel good, I don't need God. Things started to change when I went on my exchange year to America, when I came here, when I came to Greeley. And um, for me, it was a very personal experience when I saw, when I met people here that kind of defied all of the um, stereotypical things that I had in my head about Christians, you know, people that openly proclaimed uh, that they've given their lives to Jesus, that they had, that Jesus was their savior, um, that they have a relationship with God. Um, and just the boldness, I think, the boldness of that claim really shook me because in Germany, most people are uncomfortable with that. They're uncomfortable with proclaiming such things in public because they will be perceived as irrational or emotional and then they will be quickly dismissed. I'm 21 now, but when I first came to Greeley or to the United States and I stayed with the Jeffers, I was 16. Just the way that they interacted with me, even though I did have moments where I was really, um, you know, where my behavior was a little provocative because I, obviously I came here with this mindset of I'm right and everyone else is wrong. And what really amazed me was their ability to listen to me and respect me as a person in a way that was so different from what I initially in Germany always thought about Christians as this kind of, like I dismissed them as it was hard for me to believe that, you know, these people were anything else other than delusional, quite frankly. Um, and so this love and this respect, this, they, they were debating with me because they were caring about me. They cared about me as a person. They cared about the well-being of my soul. And that shook me um, because I think the key point is that my life in Germany did not have grace um, <laughs> and I don't know it was it was not as much that I had, 
that I decided, okay, I'm gonna be a Christian now. It was much more that I felt so compelled to look at the world from a different angle. And, and when I did, it seemed to make so much more sense to me. It seemed to fill me uh, with, with this enormous peace and with this, um, with this love. And I think that really uh, opened me up. And eventually I just um, kind of gave in. <laughs> um, my university, I studied political science at Free University in Berlin. And we have 32,000 people at our university. Um, and we do have a Christian club called Campus Crusade. Um, and we're five people out of 32,000. I think what carries me and what will carry me always is grace. And I just hope that I'll be able to stand firm in my faith. And I hope that's also what I can carry back with me, what I can bring back to um, Berlin, to my family and friends. All right, happy Easter to all of you. Uh, greetings to our West Campus and our 15th Street Campus, our traditions venue. So glad all of you are here today uh, on this very special occasion to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. So a few weeks ago, our uh, family went to see the movie Beauty and the Beast. Um, my college-age kids were all excited about it. They were talking about it for weeks. And so we went, and it was, it was fantastic. Um, even though I was familiar with the story, the, you know, the setting and the, and the music and the characters were amazing, okay? I was, I was in enthralled. And I was reminded of what a powerful story it is of this rich, handsome, privileged young man who lives this very, very self-centered life. And one day when he refuses to help a disguised old woman in need, she puts a curse on him and his servants. She turns him into a hideous beast, imprisoned by his own failure and hopelessness and despair. And the, the only thing that can break this curse is him experiencing genuine love. And it's a great story. It's a great story. So about halfway through this movie, as I am totally swept up in the music and the dancing and the characters, there was this <clears throat> quiet moment. And all, all of us in the theater, at this quiet moment, all of us in the theater heard this little girl say in a fairly loud voice, Mommy, can we go? We have this movie at home. Um, <laughs> now, now, I'm sure, I, I'm sure that mom was probably thinking, do you have any idea how much money I paid to get you here? You know, this ticket and the popcorn, all that. Um, but, but she didn't say any of that. The mom was great. She just calmly quieted her child. So as we were driving home from the theater, I started thinking about that little girl's perspective. Here we were watching this amazing story being told, and yet to this little girl, it was nothing new. It was the same old story that she had on an animated DVD at home. And in that moment, I realized that's exactly how many people feel about the Easter story. Perhaps many of us, it's a pretty familiar story. We know what happens, right? Jesus dies on the cross. A few days later, the tomb is empty. He is risen. Everyone's excited. Yada, yada, yada. Can we go home now and eat some ham or hunt for Easter eggs, right? I mean, if we view the Easter story through the lens of the familiar, we can easily miss the impact that this beautiful story can have in our lives. In many respects, the Easter story is the story of beauty and the beast. 
It's the story of how we, as people who often find ourselves stuck in these places of hopelessness and of failure and despair, we can be transformed into the people that we long to be. But there's one primary difference between Beauty and the Beast and the Easter story, and it's not just that Emma Watson isn't in the New Testament. Uh, the, The primary difference between these two stories is that the Easter story actually happened, which means that the transformation it describes is real. It's about more than just sitting in a theater and being inspired and having our hearts warmed. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. How we think, how we live, how we experience God, how we deal with our fears, how we face the future. All of those things are impacted by the resurrection of Jesus. If we see it not simply as a familiar story, but as a life-changing reality. So if you have your Bible um, or Bible app, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 24, where Luke describes for us the impact that the resurrection um, can have on three different groups of people, people just like us struggling with real life situations that we all struggle with. So the first real life situation that we're going to look at is hopelessness. Hopelessness. Look with me at Luke 24, beginning in verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Okay, so who are these women? We know from elsewhere in the book of Luke that Jesus' group of followers included a very devoted group of women, women who had been healed and or transformed by Jesus' ministry. They helped support him financially. Not only that, they were there for Jesus in some of his most darkest moments. As Jesus was being led to the cross, these women were following him and were weeping and mourning for him. Then they watch as he is nailed to the cross. They watch as he fights for every breath. They stand there for hours watching Jesus slowly die. So we read then, back just a few verses in Luke 23, verse 55, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph uh, Joseph of Arimathea, and they, they saw the tomb and how the body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. So these women are clearly devoted to Jesus. Now, why is that? Because, here's why, because in Jesus, they experienced a love and a value that they didn't experience. They didn't experience anywhere else, certainly not in their culture. In that culture, women were treated like property. No respect. They were treated like property. Jewish men looked down on women, but not Jesus. He cared for them. He valued them. He, he, he included them. He taught them. So here are these women who in Jesus' presence felt valued and significant as women, and now they are watching as his dead body is placed in a tomb. They were overwhelmed with hopelessness, with profound grief and sadness. Jesus is gone. Their friend, their teacher, their their hope for the future, he is gone, dead. 
In their grief, they respond. The only way they, they knew how to care for Jesus, do something practical, right? Let's just care for Jesus' body. So he was placed in the tomb on Friday night. They couldn't go to the tomb on Saturday because it was the Sabbath and there were some religious restrictions. So they waited until Sunday morning. As soon as there was enough daylight, they headed to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body with these spices. Verse 2. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, so, so they get to the tomb, there's no body. Now, how could this get any worse for them? They just want to care for Jesus' body, and his body is not there. They are in this place of utter hopelessness. There is nothing they can do. Have you ever been in a place like that? Maybe you're in a place like that right now where you feel completely powerless. You feel completely, your hope has been taken away from you. That's exactly where they were. And then, and then something happened. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. So suddenly into their hopelessness, God delivers a message of hope. Jesus is not here. And not because someone stole his body. He is not here because he is no longer dead. <laughs> he is risen. He is alive. Now, isn't it fascinating that when God delivers the most important message ever delivered to any human being on this planet, he chooses to deliver it to a group of people looked down upon in that culture, a group of women. Into their hopelessness, God communicates value. He wants them to know that they matter that he sees them, that he knows them. See, for any of us who are feeling hopeless and powerless in our current situations, maybe a lifeless marriage or the death of a spouse or a dead-end job or maybe no job at all or maybe the pang of loneliness, Jesus wants to remind us that he is alive. He sees you. And he values you. And he wants to be with you in the midst of your circumstances. You and I, we are not powerless. When we place our trust in Jesus, his very presence comes to live in us. We have the power of Jesus in us right now. In fact, listen to how the Apostle Paul applies this reality. He writes in the book of Ephesians chapter 1. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when, when he raised Christ from the dead. See, Paul's prayer is that we might experience the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And notice how he describes this power. He says, his incomparably great power for us. It is for us. That's the message that the women heard loud and clear at the tomb. And that is his same message to us. God is for you. He values you. 
No situation is hopeless when our God is on your side. When the risen Jesus lives in you, there is nothing in this world that can offer you that kind of hope. Nothing. Not medical science, not, not education, not political leaders, not wealth, or even the closest human relationships. All of those things can be taken away. But nothing can take away the hope we have in Jesus, who is risen. He is alive. He is for you. He is for you. Okay, so these women who have just had this life-changing experience, they hurry back to share the news. You can kind of, you can anticipate how this is going to go, right? Um, in that culture, right? So verse nine, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. So as these women excitedly share with the disciples what has just happened to them, they get a less than impressive response, a response of skepticism, which is the second real life situation that the resurrection speaks to, to those who are skeptical. Verse 11, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Okay, so these are the disciples, right? These are the guys who had spent even more time with Jesus than these, many of these women had, but they are skeptical of what the women are saying. They don't believe it. Perhaps they don't feel that the source is credible. As I mentioned before, many had a negative attitude towards women. But not only that, the claim itself is pretty radical. I mean, angels appearing, saying Jesus is risen from the dead. I mean, you know, come on. Now, that response of skepticism is a fairly common response when it comes to the idea of Jesus' resurrection. A recent um, survey in England, I saw just this last week, revealed that only 17% of people in that country believe the resurrection actually happened. 17%. In, in our society today, there, there is often this built-in skepticism to stuff like this. Anything we can't see, anything that's not scientifically proven, you know, there's a skepticism. And I, I get that. But there is a danger when skepticism becomes our knee-jerk permanent response. There is a danger when we dismiss anything supernatural because it doesn't fit with the laws of science. Because here's the deal. If there is a creator, why couldn't that creator do things that would temporarily suspend scientific law, the scientific laws that he established in the first place? To instinctively dismiss any supernatural claim as being religious and therefore untestable um, that is to potentially miss God, is to potentially miss God. In the, in the case of the resurrection, God actually offers any skeptics something worth considering, and that something is evidence. Evidence. There is a significant amount of evidence that points to the reality of the resurrection. We have historically reliable um, eyewitness accounts provided for us in the New Testament. These were written when the people who had experienced these things firsthand were still alive, so they could verify exactly what was being written. Not only that, we also, we, we, we know that almost all of the 11 remaining disciples, that almost all of them were killed for their faith. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know many people who would die for a lie, who would go to their death for something that they knew was fabricated. And then, of course, there's the evidence of changed lives. These fearful followers, they immediately become these bold proclaimers of Jesus' resurrection in a few days. I mean, what is up with that? And what about the billions of followers of Jesus 
whose lives have been changed by him. I mean, from an objective, I'm not talking about subjective, I'm talking objective viewpoint, there is all sorts of evidence to consider. The current movie out, The Case for Christ, is the true story of a huge skeptic, a journalist named Lee Strobel, who wanted to prove that the resurrection didn't happen. And so he approached the issue like a journalist would. That's why he was a journalist. So he approached it that way, doing interviews and examining um, evidence intellectually. But instead of, of proving Christianity was wrong, he actually became convinced it was true. He became a believer. The evidence convinced him. The evidence convinced him. This is what happened to the disciples in this passage. If you read a little later, initially they were skeptical. We just read about that. Over time, the evidence became convincing. And earlier we saw a video story of an exchange student, Favi, who was here at Christ Community here in Greeley. He came to Greeley as a diehard atheist, but became convinced that Jesus really is who he says he is. So if you're a skeptic about this stuff, the resurrection is worth exploring with an open mind. It is worth, it is worth your serious examination, your serious objective examination. Because if it is true, then Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. And he has the power to transform your life. If he's who he claimed to be, he has the power to transform your life. Okay, so we've seen how the resurrection impacts people who are, who are experiencing hopelessness and, and people who are experiencing skepticism. There's one more person in this story that Luke draws our attention to, someone that all of us can relate to, all of us can relate to, because what this person is wrestling with is failure. Failure. Peter was one of the 12 disciples. Actually, he was, one of the, he was kind of the leader, looked to as the leader of them. He was the most outspoken and the closest to Jesus. So just three nights earlier, when Jesus told the disciples that he was going to be handed over to the religious authorities, he was going to be crucified, Peter boldly proclaimed that he would never, that, that that would never happen to Jesus. He would never leave Jesus. He would gladly die along with Jesus. But then a few hours later, when the, excuse me, when the, when the arrest actually happened, Peter was nowhere to be found. He fled for his life. But he followed Jesus from a distance. He watched what was happening from a distance. But he didn't jump in to defend him or to help him. In fact, three separate times, someone in the crowd recognized Peter as, as being with Jesus. And, and Peter vehemently denied it each time. So in his shame, in his failure, he went away and he wept bitterly. That's what we're told in the text. He wept bitterly. And now Jesus was dead. Peter had, had to be feeling like a total failure. I abandoned Jesus when he needed me the most. I denied ever knowing him. What a loser I am. What a miserable, fearful disciple I have turned out to be. Well, in the midst of their feelings of failure, Peter is there when these women come tell the disciples about what they just experienced at the tomb. But instead of skepticism, like the other disciples, instead of skepticism, he has a different response. Verse 12. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. 
I love Peter's response. In the midst of his guilt and his shame and his remorse, suddenly the possibility of Jesus being alive stirred his heart to action. He ran to the tomb and he saw for himself that Jesus' body was gone. The text says that when when Peter saw the tomb, then he went away, he was wondering to himself what had happened. Now, this word wondering, I think, is an unfortunate translation because it's a similar translation to the word the women um, uh, they were wondering about what happened, but they were dif- they're different words. The word wondering is kind of misleading because it sounds like Peter is just kind of wondering, boy, I wonder what happened, you know, that kind of a deal. Um, but that's not what the word means. The word literally means to marvel at, to be astonished. See, Peter is amazed at the empty tomb. And here's why. If Jesus is alive, It means that Peter's failures don't define his reality. If Jesus is alive, it means that Peter's failures do not define his reality. See, before the resurrection, that's all Peter had, his sense of failure. Jesus is dead because of me. But if Jesus is alive, it means that Jesus is bigger than our failures. He is bigger than our mistakes and our remorse. Nothing can thwart his plans, not the evil and injustice of humanity, not our own failures. Jesus is bigger than all of that. See, some of us right now, some of us right now find ourselves in a prison of regret. A prison of regret. Our past failures are defining us. We're seeing ourselves through the lens of bad decisions, through the lens of a failed marriage, the lens of a failed business, a moral failure, an athletic failure. In other words, we see ourselves through the lens of what we are not. But the resurrection of Jesus invites us to see ourselves through the lens of who Jesus is. It's not about our failure. It's about his success. It's about his power. It's about his ability to work in our lives and to use us for his glory, no matter what we have done in the past. No matter what we have done in the past. I mean, Peter, this is encouraging here, Peter was actually one of many failures in the Bible, right? I mean, what about the Apostle Paul, who, uh, who was used uh, to throw, you know, who used to be, he used to throw Christians into prison. Or what about Joseph in the Old Testament, who was kind of a teenage spoiled brat, right? Um, or Moses, who was a murderer. Or David was an adulterer. Or John Mark, who left the mission field because he got homesick. I mean, if God was in the habit of permanently benching people who had failed him, the Bible would be a very small book. See, the resurrection reminds us that God is bigger than our failures and our shame. When we're in relationship with Jesus, it is not about our past failures. It's about our walking with Jesus in the here and now, today. Jesus is alive, and he is with us. The story of the resurrection, is, it, it is the ultimate beauty in the beast story. <laughs> A loving Savior whose death and resurrection break the power of our hopelessness, of our skepticism, of our failures, enabling us to walk in newness of life, filled with his power and his truth and his love. That's his invitation to you and me today. That's his invitation to us. Let's pray together.
Father, thank you for this incredible passage, this incredible story, and that it's true. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross, for rising from the dead for us. And I want to give a couple of invitations here just in prayer. First of all, there may be some of you, and you know what you long for is the hope that Jesus can bring the forgiveness he can bring from failures in the past. You long for that. And I, I want to lead you in a prayer because the, the, the Bible tells us that when we place our trust in Jesus, when we admit we need him and place our trust in him, he comes to live in us. He comes to live in us. He would li comes to live in you, to forgive your sin, to live in you forever and ever, to walk with you. He will never leave you. But all of that is a gift that we have to receive. He doesn't force his way in. He, he invites us to receive him. And there may be some of you here and you're like, I want that. I want that relationship with Jesus. I want him to live inside me forever and to change me from the inside out. So if that's your desire, I want to lead you in a prayer where you can receive Jesus. You can invite him into your heart. So pray along with me in the silence of your heart. Dear God, I acknowledge that you are creator, you are holy, you are perfect, and I'm not. I've done my own thing, I've not followed you very well, and I acknowledge that, and I realize my, my self-centeredness, my sin separates me from your holiness, but I don't want to be separated from you. Even though there was nothing I could do to get to you, no matter how hard I tried, you came to me. You sent your son, Jesus, to live a perfect life. And Jesus, then you chose to die on the cross for me. You paid the penalty for my sin. You took the judgment I deserved. Thank you. And I choose right now to place my trust in you. I bring you my failures. I bring you my sins and my doubts and my questions and my shame. I bring it all to you. My regrets, I bring all of that to you and I leave it with you. And now in exchange, I receive your life. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your Holy Spirit to come live in me, changing me from the inside out. So I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer, help them grow in this relationship with you. Help them grow and to know how much you love them and that you want to walk with them. And for the rest of us here, for all of us here, Lord, I want to pray for those who find themselves in hopeless situations where they feel powerless. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would remind them of the power of Jesus that lives in them that you are with them, that you value them. You have not left them alone. You are with them. And I pray that you would fill them with your power and your encouragement and your hope, Lord, that they would know they're not alone, that you are with them. And I pray here, I pray too for those who are skeptical, who are just skeptical of all this Christianity stuff, Lord, and they're, they're on a journey. I just pray for them to honestly evaluate the evidence. And I pray, God, that you would reveal yourself to them. You would reveal yourself to them and transform them. And then, Father, I also want to pray for those who are right now just experiencing a sense of failure. Maybe they, 
they know you, but maybe they've just drifted from you. They feel disconnected from you. Maybe there's a failure, moral failures, or just failures of sin, or failed marriage, whatever it happens to be. The sense of regret and failure and shame can be overwhelming. And I pray, Lord Jesus, you would enter into those places, that we would be reminded our failures do not define us. And they don't, you know, set us, put us permanently on the bench that we can never be used by you ever again because we messed up here, we did that, or whatever. That's just not the way you operate. And so thank you for this reminder that our failures do not define us. We bring them to you, and now in exchange, we receive your life and your hope. Here today, you have a plan and a purpose for us. And so I pray for that. You would pour out your spirit upon those who are filled with regret. I pray they would know that you love them and that your plans for them have not been thwarted, that you are still at work. So fill them now, Lord. Bless them now. Thank you, Jesus, for being a risen Savior. Thank you for the story that you're writing that is absolutely true, how you set us free from our prisons of hopelessness and despair and failure. And you pour out your life and your forgiveness upon us. Thank you for that. We open our hearts to receive all of that. We love you, God. We love you, Lord. So we want to celebrate, continue to celebrate the resurrection um, just by responding to his word in worship. So why don't we stand, whatever campus you're at, just stand if you would. If you want to sit on at some point, that's totally cool. But let's, let's stand as we worship this risen Savior. So set us free, Jesus, to worship you. We love you, Lord.